0: Learn all about investing in real estate in Norfolk, Virginia, with a combination of real estate financial planning and modeling with numbers specific to Norfolk, plus syndicated, more generalized recordings of live and pre-recorded real estate investing classes, not all of them specific to Norfolk. Be sure to stay tuned after the podcast for a message from our sponsors. Well, good morning and welcome, everyone. This is your host, James Orr, with a really cool class. This is a class about all of the nothing down financing options for real estate investors. A class I think many of you are looking forward to. Not everybody, but I think there's a bunch of people that are really interested in real estate investing and specifically interested in real estate investing where you can buy properties with nothing down. So that's what we're gonna cover today. Uh, I will point out something that may not be obvious to new people, but is probably more obvious to people that have been investing for a while. And that is, if we're thinking about our current environment, I'm recording this uh, May, I'm sorry, May, March 29th, 2023, while our prices, home prices have gone up a lot, very rapidly in the last few years. They're sort of stalling out a little bit, depending on which market you are. It's a little bit of a split personality market going on, depending on whether you're East Coast, West Coast. But in general, property prices are up a lot and um, they're stalling out a little bit now, but also interest rates are up a lot (laughs) and rents are up, but not quite up enough to counteract the significant increase in price and the significant increase in interest rates, so cash flow is really challenging for a lot of folks in a lot of markets right now. That is the the overwhelming number of complaints I'm seeing online when I when I talk to uh, people and when I look at people what they're writing. So, so one of the things that we talk about a lot is how do you improve cash flow? How do you actually maximize the income you're getting on property and minimize the expenses you're getting on property? And I will tell you that doing nothing down financing for real estate investors is sort of counter in a lot of ways, not exclusively, but in many, many, many ways. Uh, Trying to put minimal amount down in order to acquire rental property is going to be pushing against you trying to optimize for cash flow. Now, that may or may not be problematic for you achieving whatever goal you're trying to achieve as a real estate investor because... Depending on what you're trying to do by buying the rental property, it may be totally fine for you to be buying properties that have not amazing cash flow, as long as you're not putting much in the deal, as an example. Not necessarily that's the only way to do it. Or it may really hurt you if you're trying to do something else. So um, if you think about it from this perspective, and we go into a little bit more detail about this when we talk about setting your goals to be financially independent, but sometimes you're buying properties because you intend to have that particular property contribute to the cash flow you need in order to be considered financially independent. In order to be financially dependent, a lot of times we need to have income coming in from all of our assets, whether that's real estate or stocks or bonds or whatever else you've got your money invested in Times some safe withdrawal rate, plus all the kind of passive income stuff like pensions, annuities, and social security. The sum of all of those things, cash flow from properties, your invested assets times your safe withdrawal rate, and then all three of those passive income sources all of those need to add up and combine in order to overcome your expenses. So if you're buying properties with the intention of the cash flow from them to actually help you become financially independent, then making sure that you have positive cash flow and as strong a positive cash flow as possible, you know, kind of like the best bang for your buck, the money you put into the deal to get the best cash flow, although maybe sometimes you're willing to de-risk by doing some things that aren't optimal from a return on investment standpoint, but they're optimal in a kind of like conservative, reduced risk, safety standpoint. But a lot of times we'll take this money and we will go ahead and buy properties that are gonna contribute to improving cash flow. Now, that's great if you're trying to do that particular strategy, if you're trying to use the properties in order to generate the cash flow. However, not everyone is doing that. And so it's important to realize what your goal is. Sometimes we're buying properties as like a rocket booster. To kind of grow as an asset, not necessarily cash flow, but grow in value so that we can take the proceeds from that and then use that eventually to convert it to some type of income producing or pay off other properties that we have. So in other words, let's let's think of it this way. Sometimes you're buying properties in order to get the cash flow. That's kind of option A. Option B is you buy a property that doesn't have amazing cash flow, but that you know has got significant equity growth opportunities and some other aspects to it like debt pay down or something like that where you're growing your portfolio very rapidly then one, two, three, four, five years from now, you're going to take the equity you've acquired in that particular property. You're going to then liquidate that property and use the proceeds to maybe pay off the other properties you have to really improve cash flow on those. Or maybe you're going to take that and use it as a down payment to buy something that will cash flow a lot better at that point. Um, or maybe you're going to take that money and actually invest it in stocks or bonds or whatever it is and use your safe withdrawal rate in order to do that. Or maybe you're going to take the money and you're going to buy annuities to kind of de risk in that way. So there are different options you do. And if you remember, Although you may not have seen this before, although those that have will will kind of remember. So when we think about the returns we're getting by buying real estate, a lot of times the return on equity actually goes down. It decreases over time so that the return you're getting really early on when you buy a deal is massive usually. And that's usually the highest you're getting. And then that return, if you hold it for one, two, three, four, five years, it actually starts to decline pretty rapidly and your return goes down. So sometimes we're taking properties that we're buying with these really high returns Early on, then we're using those as kind of like rocket boosters in order to then pay off other properties. Uh, A really common version of this strategy is in the uh, Creating Wealth book by Robert Allen. He talks about buying two properties a year for 20 years. And then at the end of that 20 years, taking half of the properties, selling them off, and using the proceeds to pay off the first 10 properties that you bought so that you then have 10 free and clear properties, but you had to buy 20 in order to get there. And if you're trying to do the strategy like that, then buying properties with nothing down. Can really help you get to that end goal. Not necessarily that those properties are going to be cash flowing amazingly, because that's the opposition you have, but that's the idea. Okay, so now that I've gone off on a crazy tangent early on, let's get right into the nothing down financing options for real estate investors and we'll cover what they are. All right, so here they are. Here are the nothing down financing options for real estate investors. The first one is the entire creative financing family of options. And I'm going to go over what those are here in the next slide, not into like excruciating detail, but I will go over what they are so that you're familiar with which ones there are and kind of maybe a comment or two on whether they're likely to be nothing down. Um, But the idea is that when you're going out and you're talking to a seller, in a lot of cases, some type of seller with motivation, they're motivated in order to sell their property, you are negotiating the terms of some type of creative financing strategy. Whether you go to a seller and you get owner financing or you go to a seller and you take over existing debt by buying a property subject to or wrapping their existing loan or you negotiate a lease option with the seller who's having a hard time selling a property. So you're leasing it from them with the option to buy it later. The terms you negotiate with that particular seller are completely wide open. There are no set standards by like the traditional lending institution saying you can or cannot do this. Now, some of them there are, like loan assumption. It's going to be hard for you to do that. But for all the creative options, which we'll go over here in a second, because you're negotiating directly with the seller, those can all be nothing down. Now, I will tell you that they can be nothing down, but you're more likely to see them as some down. Sometimes a little bit down, sometimes a lot down. It's really what you're willing to do will, will determine how many deals you can do. For example, let's say you go to a seller and the seller says okay you know i'm i'm okay with your creative financing stuff but i need a little bit of money up front i need $10,000 or $20,000 or $50,000 or $100,000 in order to do the deal and the deal is really 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 good but if you're saying i only will do deals that have nothing down you may have to walk away from that particular deal even though it would be otherwise a good deal and would require a little bit of money down okay now there may be another seller that's like sure i'll do nothing down It doesn't matter to me at all and you could do those but i think you'll find more deals and a wider variety of deals. And sometimes I could argue better deals if you're willing to put a little bit down. Okay. All right. So that's creative financing. Private money and hard money. A lot of people just interchange these. I actually think of them as different. So private money in my mind is a lender, is someone who is not in the business normally of lending money. And the most common example I use is grandma. You're at Thanksgiving dinner, you're telling grandma that you are um, doing this real estate thing. You're investing in some properties and you know maybe you're flipping properties and you're going to this hard money lender and the hard money lender is charging you, I don't know, 15 point, or 15% and two points. So they're charging you two percentage points of the loan in order to initiate the loan. And they're charging you 15% interest for you know the six months or eight months or 12 months or whatever that you have the loan out there for. And grandma says, whoa, 15%, I'm only getting whatever, 4% of my CDs. I, I've got $500,000 in CDs. How about I loan you the money instead of getting 15%? Let's say uh, you charge you pay me 7% or 8% or 9% or 11%. And uh, you say, grandma, that sounds great. And she's like, well, it's better for me. I don't want to give the bank this money and they, they're, they're only paying me 4%. I'd rather have you do it. You can make some money with it. And I get more than what I get in the bank. Or maybe even grandma says, I'll do it for the same 4%. I might as well. And so the idea is that private money is someone that you know personally that you've gone to and you've asked them to become a lender on your real estate investing projects. They are not in the business of loaning money typically. Okay. And the terms of that are primarily based on your negotiating. Now, if you go to Uncle Charlie, and Uncle Charlie is a shrewd businessman. And he's like, you know, um, I would be willing to do this, but I want you to have some skin in the game. I want you to be, you know, invested in the deal. I want you to have 10% or 20% of your own money in the deal and I'll loan you as much as you need. And I'll even give you good terms. But it's up to you to negotiate those terms with Uncle Charlie or Grandma or whoever else you're borrowing money from, okay? And I will tell you that a lot of times, this is based on trust, But there are some times when the quality of the deal matters. And the quality of deal can help. You have really, really amazing deal flow. Um, This will be a lot easier for you to negotiate. And I think that's true universally. Okay? With all the people that you're negotiating directly with. All right, hard money. So hard money is money that is borrowed from someone who is in the business or some company that is in the business of loaning money on deals. Um, A lot of times it's based on the quality of the deal and a little bit of negotiation. Um, Typically, it's only commercial loans. So you're not usually going to be able to move into these properties. There are probably few exceptions to that, but most of the time a lender uh, doesn't want to deal with the the loan requirements of making loans to people that are going to own or occupy. The rules for that are different, my understanding. And so they do not want to make these loans to people who are going to own or occupy, they want to make them on someone who's going to buy a property, flip it or buy it as a rental and do something like that. Okay. So typically commercial properties only typically not good for house hackers or nomads that are trying to do this stuff and hard money loans. They can be nothing down if you have a good enough deal and you can go in there and the the rates on them tend to be a little bit higher. They also tend to charge some points, although not always, but it tends to be that way. So there you go. So that's the difference between private money and hard money. And those are options as well. So we've covered credit financing, which I'll go over some different strategies here in the next slide. Private money and hard money, kind of the difference between those two. Then let's talk about the typical nothing down financing options for house hackers and nomads. If you're wanting to do traditional non-owner occupant loans where you're buying investor properties, you're not moving into them, it's hard to do nothing down unless you do creative financing, private money, or hard money. To go and try to find a traditional lender willing to loan you money as a non-owner occupant buy an investment property, um, it's going to be really hard to do. Now, if you're a house hacker, and you're buying a single family home where you're going to get some roommates or a duplex where you're going to live in one side and rent out the other or a triplex where you're going to live in one of the units and rent out the other two or a fourplex where you're going to live in one of the units and rent out the other three. And with the duplex, triplex, and fourplex, you can, in addition, have roommates in your own unit if you wanted to. So you could house hack in two ways. You can house hack by unit. And you can house hack by roommates. But if you're going to do strategies like that, there are traditional financing options available that are nothing down and that you can do those with. And if you're going to do the nomad strategy where you buy a property, you move into the property, you live there for at least a year, which is a requirement of the lender, then you decide to convert that property to a rental, buy your next property with little or nothing down and with good owner-occupant interest rates, and then you repeat that process until you have as many rentals as you want. That's what nomading is. If you're going to do that, there are options for you to do that as well. So the two nothing down loan options are VA loans. For veterans if you have veteran benefits you can get a va loan that's a nothing down loan program and that could be used for single family homes plus it could be used for duplexes triplexes, or fourplexes so you do a nothing down loan program and be able to buy a duplex triplex or fourplex or single family home if you're doing that either as a house hacker or as a nomad but you got to move into those units you cannot buy a non-owner occupant property with a va loan you, can't, you have to move in okay and the other nothing down loan option that house hackers and nomads can use, are USDA loans. USDA loans are typically for rural properties. So you're probably not going to be able to use this inside the city. These are going to be properties on the outskirts of town, um, in in areas that have relatively low populations, and you might have to be living outside of your main marketplace in order to be able to acquire these and buy those properties. And they're only for single-family homes. So you can't use those to buy a duplex, triplex, or fourplex, it's only going to be a single family home for the USDA. So for veterans, for VA loans, you have to be a veteran. That's kind of like the restriction. For USDA loans, you have to uh, have a property that's in a rural area. So they're kind of limited in what they can do. It's not like you can universally apply these to any property that you want to do, okay? And in addition, I'll add that there may be a local bank in your marketplace, that I'm just unaware of, but occasionally we see these, or a local bank that is willing to do a nothing down, Owner occupant loan. I've never seen them do a nothing down investor loan, but nothing down owner occupant loan. I've occasionally seen a local credit union or a bank offer a nothing down loan program for you to be able to do that. So it may be worth you searching locally for your credit unions and local kind of like uh, community type banks in order to see if you can find deals like that. Okay. All right. So What I'm going to do is now we're going to go over the creative financing options, just kind of explain to you what those are and whether or not I think that they are likely to be nothing down type deals. And then we'll go over a little bit more detail about the VA loans and the USDA loans, which are the two primary ones that we're going to do. And then we'll finish up. Okay. So creative financing. There are six kind of groups of creative financing in my mind. There's owner financing, where the owner acts like the bank. They're the ones providing the financing. And in order for it to be owner financing, in my mind, it has to be free and clear. So the owner must own the property and not have any mortgage on it themselves in order for it to be owner financing. If they have a mortgage on it, it has to be wrap financing, where they're going to wrap their underlying uh, type of loan, okay? So someone who's trying to offer owner financing, but they have an existing loan in place, either they need to pay off that loan and offer you owner financing, or they're going to wrap their existing financing, and then they're going to maybe collect the difference between what they're charging you and what they're paying on the underlying loan if they're wrapping an existing loan. Okay. So the terms of owner financing and wrap financing are whatever you negotiate with the seller. So they could be nothing down loans. Now in order to find an owner financing deal or a wrap financing deal, in most cases, you're going to have to do either a lot of labor or you're going to need to pay some money in marketing in order to be have these deals come to you. So what I usually call the poor marketing methods or the, um, lazy marketing methods. So either you're poor and you're willing to invest your time instead of money in order to find the deals, so a lot of manual labor to do this, or you're doing the lazy method where you're willing to spend some money in order to have deals come to you. So those are kind of like the two groups to do that. And one, one, one way costs money and the other way doesn't. So if you're really looking for you know, nothing down, may not really be nothing down. It may be no down payment, but you still have to pay money in order to do it. Okay, so owner financing, wrap financing, you're negotiating directly with sellers. So they technically can be nothing down loans, all negotiated though. You're more likely, in my opinion, to find deals where you will put a little bit of money into these. The chance of them being nothing down is relatively small. It's not like, oh, 90% of these are nothing down. That's not been my experience. Maybe it'll be yours. So there you go. All right, next one is loan assumption. Loan assumption is when you're formally going to the bank and you are taking responsibility and formally assuming the loan from the seller. For example, they have an FHA loan and the FHA loan has really good terms on it. You're going to be moving into the property. And so you go to the bank and you say, look, I'd like to formally assume this FHA loan. They say, great, fill out this paperwork. Maybe there, maybe not. There's a fee involved and you take over their really low interest rate on the loan themselves. Now, in most cases, especially when prices have been going up rapidly since they got their assumable loan, the FHA loan is an example, they're going to have a bunch of equity in the property. How do you deal with the equity? So a lot of times it's not going to be nothing down if you're going in and doing a loan assumption. Now, if they don't have any equity, if they just got the loan and you're formally assuming it, then they may not have much equity at all or no equity. And so in some of those cases, it may be nothing down. Okay, so loan assumption can go both ways, but I think most of those are you're going to find where someone got a loan a few years ago, especially the last few years, where the property prices have gone up very rapidly and they don't have, or they do have a lot of equity. And so you're going to have to negotiate for how that equity will work out. And a lot of times that will mean you putting some money down, giving it to the seller to kind of do that deal. Okay. All right. So that's the first thing. Owner financing, wrap financing, and then loan assumption. Loan assumptions, you're formally assuming the loan. Then there's the whole rent to own, lease to own, lease option, lease purchase family, where you're leasing the property for a period of time or renting the property for a period of time, either way you want to use it. And then you're actually either getting an option to buy the property or purchase contract in order to purchase the property for ideally some pre-agreed upon price at some pre-agreed upon point in the future or a period of time that you have the option to do so. Okay, and so those, they could be nothing now. You could go and negotiate and find a seller who's motivated, who's like, look, I can't afford my payments anymore. I will go ahead and step in and start making your payments for you on your particular loan uh, or, or on your particular property. Maybe it's rent or lease. And the seller may say, yeah, I'm motivated enough. I will do that with nothing down. I think you're more likely to find people willing to do this with a little bit down, but you could probably find one with nothing down. Then you've got the whole agreement for deed, bond for deed, contract for deed, installment, land contract where you're, you have a, a contract in place, an agreement in place, where if you make payments over a certain period of time, at the end of that, you get a deed on the property. And those could also be nothing down. Again, you're likely to find ones where you have to put a little bit of money down, uh, but you can find those like that. And finally, subject two is where you are, the, the seller is agreeing to deed you the property, but they're leaving their loan in place. And you would go and usually make payments on that underlying loan. There are versions of this where you don't, but it's it's exceptional. It's unusual. So you go in there and you buy a property and there's an existing loan on the property and you're agreeing to make payments on that loan. And the seller is deeding you the property, which means you are now the owner and you're doing that. And I think those, you can find those where you have nothing down situations as well. Although I think you're likely to find somewhere, especially in our current marketplace, where they have some equity and they'd expect to see a little bit of money. Um, you know, sometimes it's as little as moving costs, right? Right. I need some money in order to put a security deposit and a down payment or a down payment or, um, you know, some other kind of like get me moved to another part of the country. You know, there's some type of incentive to help them out of the particular situation. So sometimes it's that size of down payment, but sometimes it's a lot more and it's all negotiated. All right. So those are the creative financing, nothing down type strategies you've got there. Now let's talk about the VA loans and the U.S. Department of Agriculture loans. So both of these are Nomad approved. You're trying to do the nomad strategy. I like these loans for doing nomad. In fact, VA is probably my favorite loan for doing nomad. If you could especially if you could find the duplex, triplex, or fourplex as one of your first properties to do. Okay. So both nomad approved for VA, you must have the VA benefits for the US Department of Agriculture, the rural property loan has to be a rural property, it has to be outside city limits. And there is an eligibility map you can look at on the USDA.gov website you type in the address of the property and it will tell you if it's a USDA eligible property. Uh, the link is shown here. I'll put it in the show notes. If I Remember to do that. If I don't go ahead and reach out to me and I'll go ahead and edit uh, retroactively. Uh, but you can go ahead and look at the eligibility map, or just search Google. I mean, you don't need to reach out to me. Yeah, by the time you search it in Google, you'll get a response faster than me. It's USDA um, eligibility map and it'll just show you where the USDA property is, are eligible. So you take an address of a property you're looking at, whether that's, you know, someone, someone, some property that you found through marketing of your own, or if it's a property listed in the MLS, um, you go look at the property there. And by the way, don't take uh real estate agent's words that it is a USDA eligible property. You should verify this yourself. Okay. It'll be verified when you do it, but better to know before you go under contract, whether it's eligible for USDA, nothing down, or not. Okay. All right. So there's eligibility map for you to determine that. VA, does, this doesn't apply. VA, you can do rural properties or properties in the city. It doesn't really matter. But you do need to have the VA benefits if you're uh, doing the VA uh, type alone. loan. So in both cases, 100% plus financing is available. Um, Well, it's 100% financing is available with the USDA one. It's really financing, but you still have to pay the upfront, you know, kind of PMI and stuff like that. With veterans, with the VA loan, the veterans loan, um, you can actually roll in your upfront funding fee, which makes it truly nothing down. So the VA loan is awesome. It's really, really good loan. A lot of times they have really good rates on them as well. Both of those are fixed rates um, with the uh, VA loan. There is no technical PMI. There's no monthly private mortgage insurance payment. However, with the VA loan, you do pay an upfront funding fee, unless you qualify for an exception to it. But you do pay an upfront funding fee, and that funding fee k- kind of is like paying an upfront PMI payment. It's the guarantee fee that the veterans uh, Veterans uh, Administration uses to um, to kind of like insure or guarantee the loans. So everyone's paying in if the loan defaults and that's the money that they use uh, in order to make sure that the, uh, the lenders are protected there. Uh, With the U S department of Agriculture, you will have PMI. There'll be a separate private mortgage insurance payment on those. In both cases, you must owner occupy the property. And with the USDA loan, my understanding is you cannot own any other properties with the VA loan. You can own other properties with the VA loan. You could do one to four units. You can buy single family homes, condos, townhomes, you could buy duplexes, you could buy triplexes, you could buy fourplexes. You cannot buy a five unit or greater. That's a different type of loan program altogether. It's a commercial loan. But for VA, one to four units work. For the US Department of Agriculture, um, it is not multifamily properties, only single family homes. And there, in addition to that, there are income restrictions on it. So for the USDA one, you need to have like hit a sweet spot where you can't make too much, but you need to make enough to qualify to buy that house. So you need to kind of be in this narrow range for doing that. Uh, For the VA loan, my understanding is there's minimum restrictions, basically saying that you need to be able to qualify for your loan based on debt to income and stuff like that. But there's no like maximum income that I'm aware of for the VA loan. Check with your lender. Your lender will tell you the actual rules. Uh, With VA loan, technically you can do more than one VA loan at a time. So... It's based on your VA eligibility, like how much of that stuff you're using for their loan guarantee. So if you're buying more than one property, you may be able to use it more than once or use it partially. Talk to your lender about the details in that, but it is possible to have more than one VA loan. Um, the, 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 um, The appraisals on VA loans can be a little bit longer and they can be a little bit stricter. I've seen some VA appraisers Really nitpick for uh, very tiny things that you know I think would easily pass at least a conventional loan. Um, for, for as one example, one of the VA loans that a client of mine did, um, there there was like a a flight of I don't know three stairs or four stairs going down to like a a sunken area on the property, and it, the the three or four steps did not have a handrail, and the VA appraisal required that there be a handrail which I thought was a little bit nitpicky, um, but you know, just be prepared for that mentally. You can get up to a 4% maximum seller concession so you can get a seller to contribute some money to help you get your VA loan. With the US Department of Agriculture, I believe it's a 6% maximum seller concessions and you'll wanna verify all this detail with your lender when you're getting these loans here. Um, And then there's a whole bunch of information on funding fees, which I'm not going to go into a ton of detail. If you're going to get a VA loan, though, you really should go talk to your lender or look up the VA funding fees on the next slide. The VA funding fee is that kind of like upfront PMI payment, which helps the VA guarantee loans to do that. So just be aware. So those are really the differences between the U.S. Department of Agriculture and the VA loans. Oh, I I was going to mention, don't don't trust the real estate agents for telling you which uh, properties are USDA approved, because sometimes they just assume it's out in the country. So that's USDA approved. And they don't really know. They didn't go and check on the map. Um, There are a lot of really great agents out there who will go check and verify and do that for you. Um, And then there are a handful of agents who will not. They don't know what they're doing. They don't know to even look this stuff up. And so you should do it as a double check. So this is some information about the VA funding fees, but go read it on your own. I'm not going to cover in detail what it is, but there are kind of like the amounts of the loans. If you've done it once or more, or you know, how many times you've done it. And there's a whole bunch of different stuff in there about the types of loans and whether you're doing different things with it. So in conclusion, so there are several nothing down options ranging from all the creative financing family of stuff, owner financing, lease option, uh, subject to, rat financing, all those different things there, um, to private and hard money loans. And all of those options are typical for doing non-owner occupant financing. So a lot of the creative financing stuff, it doesn't require you to be an owner occupant with the notable exception of probably the loan assumption, which may require that you owner occupy the property. But a lot of the other ones will not require that or it's negotiated. Um, but, you know, doing private money loans or hard money loans, you could definitely do non-owner occupant loans with those and buy investment property, in other words, by doing those. And for all but the hard money loans, they are probably also good options for house hackers and nomads trying to move into a property, get some income while they're living in a property if you're house hacking, or move into a property and live in the property for a year or two or whatever it is, to then convert that to a rental and continue to buy uh, properties as owner occupants moving forward, like what we call the nomad strategy. So, they could be good options for that, everything except hard money. Hard money is probably not going to be a good fit for doing house hacking or nomad. Now, there may also be local, no down payment options as well, from like local banks or credit unions or community banks and stuff like that. So, just be aware that those are the primary options. The two mainstream nothing down programs for traditional financing are the VA loan and the USDA loan. And these tend to be really good ones for house hackers and nomads. In particular, if you are a veteran, thank you for your service. And also, those are amazing loan products for you to be able to get, um, especially if you're starting out. A lot of times, um, I will recommend to nomads if you can get a VA loan and buy a duplex, triplex, or fourplex as your first property, that's amazing. Now, if it's going to take you two years to find a property where that would work for you and you can get the loan and you'll know, be able to qualify for the property and be able to, to actually close on it, it may be better for you to buy. A different property first, but if you are, if you could buy one because your marketplace has a bunch of duplex, triplex, and fourplexes kind of sitting around there. Our local marketplace where I live do not, so it's really really hard to find these. In a lot of cases, it would be better for you to get started and not wait for your VA benefits to be able to do those. Just go buy a single family home if that works for you. But if you can do it, it's really really good if you could buy a duplex, triplex, and fourplex first with a VA loan. So that's all I got for you. hope you enjoyed this class on nothing down options for real estate investors. This has been James Orr. Hope hope you have a great day. Bye-bye for now. With home prices up, mortgage interest rates up, and rents up, but not quite enough to counteract the higher prices and interest rates, cash flow on rental properties in Norfolk is harder than ever. Book a call with the Real Estate Financial Planner to apply our proprietary 88 strategies to improve cash flow on your rentals. See the show notes for a link to schedule your call and improve your cash flow today. If you're a real estate agent, lender, or professional in Norfolk that wants to help our real estate investor listeners, consider reaching out to learn about collaboration opportunities with this podcast. We'd love to add more value to our listeners by having you assist our investors buy, sell, and finance their real estate investments. See the show notes to schedule a call to discuss collaboration opportunities.